This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Carl Landers, who's one of the principal pharmacists and partners of Kingsway Compounding Laboratory in Brookvale, Sydney. Since 2001, he's helped build a world-leading team that specialises in individual medicine, which prides itself on listening and empathising with both the patient and the practitioner. It's one of the most respected compounding practices in Australia and New Zealand. Carl is a member of the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia, the Australian College of Pharmacy, and the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland, from where he originates. He's also been on the PCCA, the Professional Compounding Chemists of Australia, advisory board from 2012 to 2015, and was a member of the Pharmaceutical Society of Great Britain from 1994 to 1998. He has a special interest in biomedical disorders and has been a guest speaker at the International PCCA Conference in America, 2009, has spoken at various support groups within the local community, such as the Northern Beaches ADHD Support Group, and has given educational talks at some of the natural therapy colleges in Australia. Welcome to FX Medicine, Carl. How are you going? Yeah, very good, thank you, Andrew. Now, I guess first we have to go back to your pharmacy days. You did pharmacy in Ireland, did you? No, I actually did it in England. In England? Um, the northeast of England, Sunderland University. And was that where compounding sort of sparked your, your interest? or I mean, you would have learned compounding as part of pharmacy back then, correct? Yeah, well, we did. We had, we had probably half of our course was, was, was sort of around that type of um, pharmacy. But... It was more, I was probably more into the manufacturing side at the time. So, you know, when I did my um, internship, I did it with Glaxo. And that ah. gave me a pretty good background into pharmaceutics and how to make um, drugs the right way, you know, how to make formulations, etc. So um, it was actually more when I came to Australia was where I actually got the, um, shall we say, the bug for doing compounding. And it was um, through a... Through a journal, there was just this small little article in one of the journals that was mentioned something about compounding, and I thought, well, this is this is something interesting. So um, at the time, we were doing retail pharmacy with a little bit of compounding, but mm. it wasn't called compounding then. It was called extemporaneous dispensing. Yeah. And um, what we did, for, what we were finding was we weren't we weren't quite getting, you know, we weren't seeing major improvements in in, our, in quite a few of our patients. You know that they they started on a particular medication, you know, for something minor, say for example, like um, you know, a bit of stomach upset or indigestion or something, and then, you know, a year or two down the track, they're on several different medicines and interactions are occurring, and they're not they're not actually getting better. So we thought, well, maybe if we if we could fine tune what we were doing in the pharmacy, you know, the pharmacy compounding side of things, we would um, would be able to sort of minimize those effects, maybe have a few more choices in what we can give. So that was, that was the first sort of, um, uh, how would I say, that was the first drive for us to, to say, okay, 
this is something we can put into our practice. Yeah. And um, as it turned out, then we had a, a, a close friend of ours, his name is Tony Mazzi, which is a very good, very good compounding pharmacy that pharmacist we met. Um, he was doing a lot of work with autistic children at the time. Right. And he was using nutritional therapies. And when we were, we, we sort of collaborated and that sort of was the icing on the cake for us because that gave us sort of the best of all worlds, you might say. So we could deal with sort of your, 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 your sort of allopathic medicine and then you could deal with your um, natural med- medicine. Mm. And the two sort of meld together and that's how we, we got into the nutrition compounding. Compounding has been something the pharmacists have been doing for decades, eons. You know, they used to make up Whitfield's ointment even though there was the... Um, you know, the pre-made things from, not Gold Cross, but, you know, David Craig and these suppliers. Yeah, that's right. It was called extemporaneous dispensing. That was very basic, very basic formulations, Um, been around for a long time. Um, They had their place, but today compounding is a completely different beast altogether. So, you know, you wouldn't be doing, you wouldn't be making up the compounds that we would do in a back of a retail store or anything like that, that would not be appropriate. You know, I, I still remember pharmacists making up coal tar creams and things like that, that f- with it for, um, in a specific strength as required by a GP for, let's say, a psoriasis or, or a derma, dermatosis. Yeah. Very often they were creams. But in the olden days, when you see these old pharmacies and you see the carboys, the glass carboys and the glass jars with squill and gentian yeah. and things like that. So what really interests me is that pharmacists were herbalists. Well, ab- well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to go back a little bit further, the, well, let me put it this way. There's, there's part of pharmacy is called pharmacognosy, mm. and that's the study of the plant's that are used um, in treatment healings and how you can extract things from those plants to actually, um, you know, make into a formulation for a person to use. So, yeah, the, uh, it is a bit of an irony that the, that, um, the um, pharmacy, where it, it's, more, it's more based on pharmaceuticals today, mm. but its, its origins are quite firmly set in the actual herbal industry. And um, and it just depends how far you want to go back. I mean, we've we've got some really old, old formulation books which which are, which are which are full of different type of herbal tinctures and things like that. Wow, which were the norm. Yeah. And if you think of if you think of the RX on a prescription, that that actually stands for recipe. So when right. the prescribers were actually doing it, they would they would create a recipe of what they were going to make for the patients, and. Um, and yeah, every pharmacist was making up all sorts of wonderful things that, um, many years ago. But then, of course, with the advent of making it a lot easier, you know, the, the manufacturers started bringing out set formulations and that sort of art of, of what we call the art of compounding was, has been lost. Mm. But, it's, but it's back now. So what, what interests me, though, is that now, of course, there's that part that that previous stuff is now untrue because it's now called pseudoscience by a lot of people. There's probably some sort of political agendas that go on there, which, um, which aren't in the best interest of, um, of science and patient health, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, to me, the proof's in the pudding at the end of the day is the patient getting better. And there's many, there's many different formulations. There's many different parts of, of healthcare, which, which all sort of combine together to help the patient. 
I think it's it's not just the pharmaceutical industry. It's not just natural therapies. It's not just chiropractors or physio. It's all of them together coming together um, um, as one really is the ideal. But um, yeah, we'll we'll just have to sort of watch this space and see how how that pans out over the next number of years. That's the definition of inter interdisciplinary. But you know, it tends to be. Um shanghai in certain circles. <laughs> but do you have an official definition of what compounding is? Um, yeah, if I could, if I could, off the top of my head, I mean, it's, it is the um, process and art of formulating a um, particular compound for an individual patient. So it's, it's specifically for one person. So you can't really do double-blind clinical trials on these on compounds because n equals one. Mm. So it's it's basically personalised medicine. I think the important thing that you mentioned there is individual. So it's individualised medicine, and therefore it's not a batch. And I think this is where some no. confusion comes in. So there's a there's a a difference in legalities, if nothing else, than with regards to batch manufacturing. Can you briefly go through what batch manufacturing is? Yeah, look, um, there's, there's quite a distinct difference. So when you, when you manufacture something, you do it under what's called GMP practice, which is good manufacturing practice. Yep. Now, you have to have a particular license from that, and if you're making anything got to do with medicines, you have to, go, that you have to get a license from the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. So manufacturing will make one type of medication for many people. That's the big. That's the biggest difference. So the so the, the 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 process and regulation that has to go on for that. Well, you got to be make sure that you're 100% positive that what you're actually releasing to the public just is is exactly what it is. Be it for whether it causes uh, could cause harm, be it be the wrong dose, or be it it doesn't work. So you know you could be making one product and they could be making a million packets of us. So you don't want that affecting a million people if something went wrong. With compounding, you're dealing one pro one patient. What are their needs, their specific needs? And you're going to have somebody making it from scratch, literally from every little active ingredient, putting it together and coming up with something to suit. So there, there can be a bit of trial and error at the beginning, um, but there's a lot of experience with it now, you know, and, and around the world. And there's quite quite a, a significant number of studies um, which show the benefits of various dosage forms that can only be compounded. Right. So it's very hard to upscale a compounded product to a manufacturing as well. So there's, there's, there's that part as well. Um, it's just, you know, for example, if, you had, if, you, if you're making some capsules or tablets in, in manufacturing, you, you use magnesium stearate, which is used as a lubricant. Mm -hmm. That's not just a lubricant for the tablet, it's actually for the machines so yeah. that the powders can flow and they can make, otherwise they'd seize up. Whereas in compounding, we don't have to do that because we're doing it manually. Gotcha. So we don't need to use magnesium stearase. So right. th things like that, yeah. The, man the ma manufacturing is GMP, whereas we look at compounding as, as um, CMP. <laughs> you might say compounding <laughs> practice, yeah, compounding yeah. manufacturing practice. But I can't use the word manufacturing because it's, we definitely can't manufacture so we can't make up a whole load and then sell it to some people to, to people for them to unsell or anything like that that's no a, that's right that's that, impossible and that yeah. requires a batch you know where you have a, a use by date you have a batch number 
you know, you have tracking of the ingredients, where it came from. I would, I'm going to guess here and forgive me if I'm wrong, but do you then have to be involved in testing of a batch? Well, yeah, look, I, I suppose the way compounding is now, has now um, um, progressed to is you, we, for example, we would definitely test our products. We would have to do sample testing. So we'll take random samples, which we'll make, which we'll test to see that our processes are correct. We'll do samples to check that the that the um, the technicians are actually following the standard operating procedures, making things right. All of those things that you would expect, like recording your batch numbers, everything, that that's all done in compounding. Well, certainly done with us, where we we can record it to the second, so we know exactly when something's been made. We have wow. you know the 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 way it's been made. The the laboratory is you know they have temperature, pressure, humidity controlled um, environments where. They're critical to ensuring a consistent compound. So the advancement in compounding has really gone in leaps and bounds from just a pestle and mortar. I mean, we would rarely use a pestle and mortar today mm. um, because the, the the advance in the machinery and, and the equipment is just so much better now that you can you can get a a a, a quality compound that is as good as if what you would get as a manufactured product. Wow. Um, yeah, so and it, it, and it, around the world, I mean, it's quite it's quite um, compounding is is quite uh, renowned around the world, especially in Brazil, the United States, um, Europe. It's been going on for a long time before Australia um, sort of picked up the baton. With regards to prescribed ingredients, off the top of my head, let's say it's a pregnenolone or progesterone, troche. Being an individualized medicine, can a GP still write repeats? for like a maximum number, let's say five repeats seems to be the maximum, or does the patient have to see their practitioner each time before a refill is made? What's the legalities of that? Look, there's, there, there, isn't, there isn't really much. There's not some sort of legal obligation with repeats or anything like that. Right. And the, the repeats have come from what we would normally do with PBS dispensed mm. medicines, which mm. are just your regular thing. So there's in those, there, there, are, there are limits as to what you can actually allow for repeats um, for particular reasons, so yep. that there, 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 there has to be a follow-up, et cetera. Usually what we find is with, um, with compounded products is that for the first, for the first few um, um, compounds that are made for the patient, the practitioner will have a follow-up appointment maybe six or eight weeks later to see how they're actually responding. Yep. Now, you know, we would also, you know, follow up the patient and see how they're getting on. If there's nothing happening, we usually would contact the practitioner and let them know. So maybe there has to be a change in the dose or something like that. But the reason, there are some people that get stabilized. So if you take those trochets, for example, or, or particular creams, then there is, what would happen is um, maybe after six months that the patient is stabilized. Mm-hmm practitioner might say, okay, well, everything's working fine now. You can continue on that dose. And here's a repeat. Usually they'd only do one or two repeats because they'd like to see the patient again, maybe, you know, three or four months later, just to make sure everything is right. Yeah. It's not a legal issue. It's not really a, le- a legal requirement or anything like that. It, it's really up to the practitioner where, when they want to see the patient again. Yeah. So it's more of an, say, an assessment it, issue. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So prescribe an amount that will, that would allow the um, the persons have enough for at least two weeks after your next appointment. That's sort of the, the rule of thumb we work on just in case there's 
delays or anything like that. Yeah. And of course, you know, I, I guess most people or many people would, many practitioners would be aware of the compounding of prescription items. But what confuses me a little bit is I've been aware because I've been exposed to it. There's a, a G, two, uh, two GPs locally that do compounding of certain nutrients. But compounding of nutrients is actually something that you do as well. So it doesn't have to be a prescribable item as per a doctor's prescription. It can, naturopaths can use a compounding pharmacy to compound specialized nutrients that they want to get in a certain dose, a certain form, or even a certain type of nutrient. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the requirements, the requirements, legal requirements are, is that if we make up a compound, we require a prescription. Now, prescription has got many different meanings. You know, it, it's basically an order. That's, that's what it is. It's like a, just an order form. But yep. in medical terms, we call it prescription. So a doctor, a medical doctor is allowed to prescribe medicines on Schedule 4 and Schedule 8 in the poison schedule, as it's called. Now, they're, they're your, your, your straightforward pharmaceutical products. Naturopaths probably wouldn't have much use for those, um, um, although they might work as, uh, in collaboration with, um, with other practitioners. When it comes to naturopaths prescribing, or for that matter, nutritionists or chiropractors or whatever, um, usually the, having an, a, a little bit of background knowledge of, of that type of prescribing is pretty good, and that comes sometimes with training, extra training and stuff. Yep. But um, they can actually write down yeah, pretty much any type of formulation that they want. Um, they're, they're the, the strengths, the, the, the form of the, the raw material, the... Sometimes it can be raw materials that aren't, are, are products or raw materials that aren't available in Australia, mm. but yet they are available and used quite successfully overseas. A compounding pharmacy can get in those raw materials and they can put together, you know, the appropriate um, formulation for the patient. And it really comes down to it really comes down to what is the practitioner's. Um, you know how 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 high is the sky? You know. I guess the 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 rule of thumb here is within their scope of practice. So you know, for instance, yeah, a, a naturopath yeah. can't prescribe um, pregnenolone, progesterone. It, that's out of their scope yeah, of practice. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, so I mean, the, the the opportunities are just enormous for, for for practitioners. You know, it's when the when certain products haven't actually you know, work for some of the patients. So there's plenty of some, you know, plenty of great um, practitioner ranges out there in Australia, which which are quite fine and, and patients have got great success in. But then there's the in-between. There's just those little few that where it hasn't quite worked. Or there's too much of a particular nutrient that they don't want to give. Mm. Um, and that's where compounding can come in and say, well, let's let's formulate something specific now for that patient. And um, you know, we would work with the practitioner, get a little bit of background from the patient on the patient, and then come up with a formula, and then see how the patient um, responds. So, there's quite quite a quite a, 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 a an enormous opportunity for naturopaths to fill in that gap now. Yeah, and they can be they can be guaranteed and and certain that it's going to be made in the right way and it's going to be the correct dose and it's going to be the it's going to be backed up by the compounding pharmacy so that's probably the other thing is that 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 people don't realize that in order for us to make the compound and actually release it we also have to do a risk assessment to make sure that it's appropriate for the patients aha uh -huh, good so that if we so that if we've got any doubt that it's not appropriate well we just simply won't compound it yeah and 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 that's 
that's a very good backup support to have with practitioners as well. So, so that they understand that there, there are some things that, you know, may not be the best things, even though there might be some minor studies on them, or there might be studies done in mice, or there might be studies done in whatever. But to apply to a um, to a person in a clinical setting just might not be the most appropriate thing. What does um, fill me with curiosity is why aren't naturopaths and herbalists using this already, particularly naturopaths, because a herbalist will be compounding every day of the of the working week. That's what herbal medicine is. It's compounding a particular yeah. preparation for a particular um, patient. And there indeed are extemporaneous nutrients made by supplement companies. But what I don't understand is why naturopaths don't use pharmacies that are well-equipped, um, particularly from a uh, a quality perspective, you know, a cleanliness perspective with the equipment that you have, indeed the requirements that you've got to have to be able to use these compounds for their patients on an, on an ongoing basis. So my next question is, what nutrients do you find are more common? What do you get use of? Well, look, to be, to be honest with you, there's, no, there's nothing specific. It's pretty much everything. I mean, you know, all your, your, your vitamins, all your minerals, um, amino acids, herbs, it's, it's pretty much anything that's, um, that's not an S, um, an S4. You're right. So the, the, yeah, the, the, the choice is, is limitless really. And, um, it just comes down to what, again, how that formulation would be the most appropriate for the, for that patient. So for example, you could, you know, the, um, a, a simple one would be say, for example, zinc transdermal cream. Mm -hmm. Okay. In pharmacy terms, in compounding terms, a zinc transdermal is a way of getting zinc through the skin, through the dermis, into the bloodstream. So you're getting systemic absorption. Now, you can, usually people that have got zinc deficiencies have got absorption issues to begin with. So compounding a zinc transdermal is a very easy way of getting zinc into the patient without you know, having, having to go through the gut. So it bypasses. You end up, you can use low, much lower doses. It's nice and easy. And, you know, for people where they might have skin conditions as well, they don't get good absorption, things like that. These things really can penetrate even, even the toughest skins, shall I say. Right. But, um, but they're also very good for um, children. So children, infants, where they're not going to be swallowing capsules or tablets or anything like that. And some of the things just don't taste too good. Very easy way of getting ah. a, a, a nutrient through the skin. And that's just one of many. I could go through zinc. You can go through all your bees. A lot of the water-soluble ones, the uh, uh, vitamins are very easy to get through the skin. And you can get multiples. So there's plenty of studies done um, showing that you can get, you know, five, six different nutrients or minerals through the skin at the same time. And what the patient would, or what the practitioner would do would be to from the test results that they have, decide, yes, we need some of this. They're not absorbing it. We've tried it orally. It hasn't worked. We will, um, we'll try the cream. So after about eight weeks, they would retest again, and then you get a gauge on how much they're absorbing over that period of time. Then there might be an adjustment in the dose, up or down. And sometimes that gives the window, that gives the, the, the window to be able to introduce oral preparations again further down the track. So, Try not to think of it as, as using a transdermal cream all the time, but use it as a way of, of uh, bridging a gap, yeah. you might say. Just thinking about creams, what 
obviously you've got a base to carry the active in. Do you yep. change the base at all with different skin types, different maybe conditions that you might be treating? Absolutely, yeah. The choice of the, the choice of the base is very important. So luckily today that there are quite a few compounding companies that um, um, supply a whole raft of different bases hmm. and they're all excellent. So they can get really large molecules through the skin. They can get very ionic molecules through the skin, you know, poorly soluble. There's the, 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 it's quite complex, the formulations, um, the base formulation themselves. But um, the result is that the person gets the absorption of the active. Um, we also make our own, for example. So there's, you know, we understand the, the pharmacokinetics and um, the, the pharmaceutics of, of doing that. Mm. So you can make up your own particular bases. We try and, do, we try and use our own if we can um, um, because we, we have certainly, you know, some sensitive patients and some of the um, ingredients that might be in some of the bases that are sort of readily available just might not be appropriate for some people, Yeah, especially autistic children. Well, that's a good point to carry on with. Do you find that maybe autistic children respond with a feel? Let's say to a, they might respond better to a cream which disappears into the skin rather than an ointment which tends to sit onto the skin and gets, get absorbed slowly. Do you find that, yeah, that ab- issue? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're very tactile. And yeah, the, the, the different places you can, you can apply it. Mm. Some people will apply it around the neck and the back, you know, so the kid gets a little bit of a massage at the same time. Right. It relaxes them. Um, they're, 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 they feel they get a nice response from us. Right. So, you know, it, it, yeah, I suppose, what can I say? Yeah, it, it definitely makes an enormous difference, yeah, for, for those children. In fact, a lot of the preparations we make are usually in transdermal to begin with for, for those children. Gotcha. And I, I, I was wondering about patient compliance, but I guess, as you say, if they're receiving a massage, then it, it requires the application by, you know, somebody, usually their parent or their caregiver. Um, so yeah. I would imagine then that the compliance is actually high, not low. It is, Absolutely. That's um, that's one of the biggest problems with anybody taking medicine is compliance. Yeah. And if you can if you can get that's the number one thing. Sometimes it doesn't matter how you try and get it in, but they have to be using it consistently. Usually, we find that taking anything more than twice a day or, or is it, it becomes a pretty much falling off a cliff in terms of compliance. It yeah. just gets too hard. Yeah. So if you can, even it twice a day is the ideal because even if you do it once a day. Um, people can forget a day. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing it twice a day, the worst that they'll do is usually forget one dose. Right. Which means they can take their next dose straight away and move on and continue with it. So the, so it, it sort of has a little bit of a safety net as well. Good advice. And what about practical things like staining? You know, it actually flows on from what you said. I'll always remember mum, you know, when we had a cold, she'd rub on the Vicks and it would just felt gunky, but there was something nice about it. But you ha- you really had to wear a, a crappy t shirt to bed, <laughs> or else yeah. it was everywhere. So what That's about right, things yeah. like that? Let's say, for instance, I I work with calendula cream quite a bit with um, supporting my cancer patients, and that I tell you, it's mm-hmm. a bugger to to stain. Do you have an issue with that, or do you tend to just it, it you know tends to be whatever the characteristics of the uh, ingredient is? Yeah, it it can be one of the things with with um, with staining. It might have to do with the formulation. So if you're using a transdermal, there shouldn't be any issue with staining. 
right. because you're going to get it all fully absorbed. Now, having said that, there are there are certain there are certain um, ingredients that that have may last a little bit longer in the skin, but it's not a lot. If you take you know uh, uh, pyridox and phosphate, for example, it looks yellow on the skin when it's applied. Mm. But depending on the on who it's been applied to and the condition of the skin, for some people within a minute it disappears, and for other people it could be five or ten minutes before it disappears. Yeah, and that's probably more reflection on the on the the health of their um, their skin more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. But but the staining, no, I mean iron doesn't stain. We've got formulations now where we can do where people can get iron and a transdermal as well, and it doesn't stain. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's really useful. Yeah. So it, there, there, there are there, the advances, shall I say, in 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 formulations has just you know it's just grown exponentially over the last ten years. Yeah. Um, and there, there's so many different ways. Things, even some items where people would would would, would like to take them and they 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 smell, you know, the particular ingredients. Well, now there's ways of actually masking those those smells and stuff, so people more tolerable, you know. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, pregnant women with B vitamins. You know, multi, yeah. multivitamins and things like that, they, they gag very often and they become yep. super sensitive to otherwise innocuous smells. Carl, what about things like safety? So, you know, running through my mind is the old, um, you know, topical application of an NSAID if they were um, also taking a, a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor and you might have a triple whammy. Now, I would imagine that that's probably a dose-related thing probably more likely with an oral formulation, but do you have any issues that you've got to consider with regards to safety, maybe their kidneys, kidney function or anything? Yeah, look, the, the good thing, I suppose, that is that uh, when, when you do a compound and dosing is you start with the, with the lowest dose that works to begin with. Right. So you're, there is, there's always something in the background that you have to be aware of with, with, um, with anything that you put into your body. So anything you put into your body, first of all, be it natural or be it be it um, um, you know a, a pharmaceutical or whatever, there's always the potential for an adverse effect, and it can be caused by different things. So you can have an adverse effect by the the drug itself, so that the metabolites that are coming from us actually have um, an adverse effect on the patient. Yeah. But then you can also have nutrients and stuff where you give where where you might be giving too much of a particular type of nutrient, which is causing an imbalance in the biochemistry, and that's causing a reaction in the patient that is unpleasant. And that becomes a dosing issue. Uh-huh. So you have to keep yeah, so you have to keep an eye on, on, on how the patient responds. So the feedback from your patient is extremely important, which we which we encourage as soon as anybody starts any compound is that if there's anything unusual if you feel anything unusual, doesn't matter what you think, whether you think it's small or big or whatever, let us know, and we can actually then see whether that's related to something else. Yeah, well, I will. I would actually. I was thinking about this that it would actually encourage the collaboration between you and the practitioner, with the patient's well-being in the middle. So it really does become this two-way, you know, talk about management. It's what we call a triad. Okay? Right. The practitioner, the compounding, and the patients. And it's the three collaborating together, which is very important. You know, the response from the patient, how they feel, how they're, what's changed. You know, some of the things we do is um, for some people that try, they they will write out, you know, some of their symptoms or things that they they, they feel need to be addressed. Mm. And we tell them to put it into an envelope and 
and leave it and don't look at us. And now when you go through some of the treatment, uh-huh. we'll have a look, have a look in a six months time, write down again now how you're feeling. And then they do a nice comparison. And 99 times out of 100, they're actually doing a hell of a lot better. And there's a few things on that list that have disappeared. Yeah. Mate, you said something very interesting to me earlier on in that it's not just nutrients and, and your pharmaceutical preparations, but herbs as well. Do you tend to, yes. to do liquid herbs or do you have dry formulations as well? We have dry, yeah. The reason we prefer to do dry is, is um, has to do with contamination. Ah. So we, we, when, when anything goes into a liquid, there's a potential for contamination or growth of you know, microbial growth, etc., and also stability issues. Yep. So while, you know, giving something in a small dose, some herbs and stuff, and see how they respond for a week or two, that's all great. But for, from a compounding perspective, we have to be able to justify any expiry dates yeah, or um, best before dates that we actually put on our compounds. And that takes that can be in, in the form of doing our own testing and seeing how what, what the results are, you know, a few long-term studies. Um, are looking at literature research and seeing how would how you know what would be the stability of some something. So, for example, if you made some a, li- um, uh, a liquid preparation, probably you can't give much more than fourteen days on that unless you start start having a study on it. Mm. You may be able to go a month on some things, but usually that's about it. If you don't, if you especially if you don't put any any anything like preservatives or anything like that, which is what most people don't want to have in their preparations. So we've got to be careful from that aspect of, you know, we could be we could be giving them something else, <laughs> an yep. infection or something like that. Yeah, um, and, and people will drink it, yeah. straight from the bottle. You know that. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> they will. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the dry preparations are are much better. They're easier to work with. They can be formulated to a powder. So you know, it, it, a powder blend. They can take a scoop of it or something and mix that with something else if they want something that they might, you know, have a drink that they particularly, you know, like the flavor of, you mix in with that. And other things we do is, um, is make masking, masking syrups, um, which um, are really good when you, when for some people where we'd make the capsules and they, and they, they, they don't want to swallow the capsules. So they'll open the capsules and they'll mix it into a little bit of this mixture. And the, the combined effect is that they end up getting a much, much more palatable, um, uh, dose of their medicine. So there's, there's 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 easy ways around that, you know, in terms of all that um, taste issues and, and whatnot. Yeah. What about particular routes of a, of administration? Now we've mentioned creams, but yeah. let's just say, for instance, somebody wanted a calendula pessary for treating vaginal thrush. Would that be yep. something applicable? You could do that from a naturopathic prescription. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the yeah the 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 issue with um the the issues that we would be looking at to make that would be its its um, stability next to heat. Right. So part of the process of making a um, a suppository is that you have to use some heat, but um, it's not much. You only go up around fifty eight degrees. Yeah. Um, from my memory with calendula, I don't think there's any issues with that. That's that's, that's not a problem. There's a lot a lot of um a lot of the um. Uh, herbs and a lot of um, the nutrients and things are very heat stable, mm. so there usually isn't any issue. Yeah, and you can put in whatever you can put in the the, the calendula. You can you can you can 
put in anything else that you might think of. Mm-hmm. I know some people have even managed to get some probiotics into into some of the um, pessaries. Yeah. For, as an example. Just a couple of last questions. I guess the first one is obvious turnaround. And the last one is where can practitioners, natural health practitioners, get further information or maybe contact you um, to discuss their, the potential of them using a compounding pharmacist for their you know, nutritional requirements in certain patients? Uh, yeah, look, the, 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 way, the way a practitioner should, should start is, is basically contacting the compounding pharmacy. So for us, we, we would actually sit down with them. Sometimes we sit down with them and we talk with them about, the, about what their needs are, um, certain, certain patients that they might um, see a lot of so with certain conditions. So there's specific type of formulations they'd like to be working with. Um, we work with, with them. So it's it's a learning curve that 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 you know you have to start somewhere. But as time goes on, we found some naturopaths to become very versatile in how they in how they use compounds, and they 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 start to understand a lot more of the formulations and how they are. So the number one thing, yes, is contact us. Is get in touch. Um, information wise, there's there's plenty of websites out there. We, I mean, we've got a practitioner portal in ours where mm. people can sign up and and then. When you look at the at the particular compound, or look at the nutrient, or whatever that that you just put in the search term, you can find a whole number of compounds related to that. And then with that is there's information on how to prescribe. There's information like white papers and and research articles and things like that, which were which were growing organically as we speak. Yeah. There there are ways. There's also conferences. There's there's um, there's conferences that go on for about compounding, explaining how you know how to use certain um, uh, nutrients, minerals in compounding and, and why you can, you know, you learn things about why this form would be better than that form. You know, why a sulfate isn't, isn't as good as a glycinate, but it's very good. It's very good in a liquid. There's, there's all the different forms. There's so many different forms that you can get now, different nutrients and minerals yeah. that um, there, there's a few core ones. And then there's a few where, you know, you got to try something else. You got to try a different form. So it's not the, it's not the formulation; it's just that 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 active isn't 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 the right for that for that patient. Yeah, and yeah, and as I said, it just the knowledge will grow. The knowledge will grow, and look, it's only a phone call away. Yeah, as we say, just pick up the phone. You'll get through to a compounding pharmacist, and you'll get us get the information hopefully that you need. Mm. And um, you know, yeah, it's it's, it's collaborative. It, it's great. You work with the with we like it because we get a lot more contact, social contact as well with the with the practitioners. And yeah, the, 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 at the end of the day, the patient is the one that we're trying to get better. Well, I've got to and say, I, I've learned so much just speaking with you. Um, I'll definitely be using more of compounding. This is awesome. I, I, like things that I never even thought of. Yeah, it's 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 definitely from the days from the old days of compounding where you know, making things up at the back. Today, the advancements and, and what happens, you know, like um, as we've got like, for example, ISO 9001 standards, which is internationally recognized. You, it's that level that it's gone up to. Yeah. This is, this is what people have to understand. It, it, it's, 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 uh, it's very highly sophisticated and very, um, uh, very much um, stressed on quality and consistency that you just you just can't get from what you used to have years ago so all, all of that sort of extemporaneous stuff will probably phase out 
and people can now can now get really top quality um, personalized medicine. It's, it's it's just brilliant. That's why we love it. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic information. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today, Carl. Brilliant. Pleasure, Andrew. Thank you very much. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society.